X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, the 21st of December. Christmas is coming up. To close out the year, don't forget the Give Guide gives a chance to give back to many of the organizations that give to our communities. X-Ray is grateful to be included in this group, and we're grateful for your ongoing support. X-Ray. With your help, we're going to keep bringing the local to your ears each day. And if you support it, we can keep going. And by the way, and by the way, if you like it, tell somebody. Even if it's just the local at x-ray.fm. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, December 21st, 1620, Mayflower Pilgrims came ashore at Plymouth Bay, Massachusetts. Starting in 1608, a group of English families who wished to separate from the Church of England left England for the Netherlands, where they could worship freely. By 1620, the community determined to cross the Atlantic for America, which they considered a new promised land where they could establish the Plymouth Colony. After 66 days at sea and several weeks docked in Provincetown Harbor while the passengers explored Cape Cod, the Mayflower finally docked in Plymouth. December 18, 1620, and December 21st, today back in the day, the first expedition took the shallop ashore. Took the shallop? What's shallop? What's a shallop, you ask? I had to ask. It's a light sailboat used mainly for coastal fishing or as a tender. Also can refer to an open wooden work boat, such as a barge, a dory, or a rowboat. And when you see in the movies, they have the big sailboat, and then there's like a little boat that they head to shore. Pretty sure that's the shallop. The first passengers to step foot in Plymouth were undocumented. Little is known of their first expedition. They originally hoped to reach America by early October using two ships, but delays and complications meant that they could just use one, the Mayflower. When the ship arrived, the pilgrims had to survive unprepared through a harsh winter. Only half of those pilgrims survived that first winter. Without the help of local indigenous populations to teach them how to gather food, other basic survival skills, all of the colonists may have perished. And that began a long tradition of paying back that kindness. Oh dear, I apologize. As one of the earliest colonial vessels, the ship has become a cultural icon in U.S. history. Celebrations for the 400th anniversary of the landing had been planned this year in the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands. But because of the coronavirus, those plans have been put on hold. Instead, I could refer you to the 1619 Project, which offers some critically important American history. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. Also, an interview with Andrea Durbin, director of the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability for the city of Portland, about what the city of Portland is doing on climate change. X-ray. First up, it's time for the quick six local rundown. Mayor Wheeler, that's the name of the mayor, has announced a plan to reduce shootings in Portland. On Friday, along with Police Chief Chuck Lavelle and Director of the Office of Violence Prevention Nick Green, the mayor addressed the recent increase in gun violence. The plan involves more detectives assigned to shootings as well as more hospital-based trauma responders deployed for shooting victims. This year, Portland has seen a dramatic increase in gun violence. 2020 has seen 858 shootings in town. 224 have been shot and injured. 39 have been killed by firearms. In March, the city reported a 150% increase in shooting injuries. Wheeler promised in August he was working on a plan to curb the violence. The mayor was criticized by the police bureau for dissolving the Portland Police Bureau's gun violence reduction team. According to Sergeant Kent Dulio, a former member of that task force, had this to say, I'm quoting, Right now in the city of Portland, there is no uniform component that is contacting any of the subjects involved in gun violence or any of this back-and-forth retaliation stuff. Officers say the intervention teams such as the GVRT only work in the short term, don't address long-term issues that lead to violence, such as economic instability. Others say, but yeah, but if you can stop somebody shooting somebody in the short term, well, maybe they don't get shot. That said, homicide and gun violence rates in Portland were trending upward before the pandemic and before the disbanding of the gun violence reduction team. The black community in Portland is disproportionately affected by gun violence. 
making up just over half of all victims and suspects. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. According to the Oregon Health Authority, Oregon saw 1,153 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. State's total has now reached 102,930. There was one new death reported. Our death toll is 1,341. This week's shipment of vaccines is down by about 40%. Governor Brown announced last week that Oregon would be receiving 15,600 fewer doses in the next shipment of vaccines. Washington Governor Jay Inslee reported the same hours earlier. The reduction was a federal decision, and many states are seeing similar cuts. President Trump blamed issues of production on Pfizer's end. Pfizer denied this, saying they, quote, have millions more doses sitting in our warehouse, but as of now, we've not received any shipment instructions for additional doses. According to the Oregon Health Authority last week, the number of doses distributed in Oregon was only 4,875. The Oregon CARES Fund is being put on hold due to legal challenges. The fund established in July was meant to distribute $62 million to Black-owned businesses and Black Oregonians. Black people, along with other BIPOC communities, have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Now $8.8 million of that fund is being put into a special account. The money is going to stay in that account and not be distributed to remaining applicants until the District Court of Oregon decides on the constitutionality of the fund. That's the U.S. District Court, to be clear. Opponents of Oregon CARES claim that a fund that favors just one race is unconstitutional. And legal scholars are skeptical the court will side with the fund. A new class action lawsuit might seal the fate of the fund. It was brought before the court by Great Northern Resources, a logging company which previously challenged the fund. The lawsuit will put two nonprofits, the Contingent and the Black United Fund, at jeopardy. The nonprofits were tasked with administering the money and have been paying the legal fees of the challenges brought against the fund. As a compromise, the nonprofits left the remaining $8.8 million to the court to decide its fate after the lawsuit is resolved. A group of Oregon legislature staffers have filed to form a union. Last week, lawmakers' employees in Salem filed to become the first legislative staffer union in the country. The effort doesn't come from a specific dispute. Workers at the Capitol have been discussing unionization for years. Staffers say that the union will give them a voice in making capital policies. Workers for legislators of both parties say that they need more representation after a confusing process this year that changed pay for staffers. Staffers said that the policy itself wasn't an issue, but they were largely left out of the creation of the policy. Advocates for the union also say that the Capitol's policies for harassment need to be revised. Policies have been changed in recent years, but staffers are concerned that the current rules put victims at risk of being outed against their will. If the union is successfully formed, it would represent staffers for all 90 state legislators, as well as workers in both Democratic and Republican leadership offices. They would be represented by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 89, which already represents a range of clerical workers. Tony Ruiz, an IBEW organizer, spoke about the union's approach. Quote, we see value in working with the employer. Other unions want to be more combative. That's not where we are. The legislature has until December 29th to raise a dispute against the effort. If the legislature agrees to the union, it may be formed as early as the end of the year. I'm going to do those last couple of lines in case you heard the beeping in the background. 
Tony Ruiz, an IBEW organizer, spoke about the union's approach. Quote, we see value in working with the employer. Other unions want to be more combative. That's not where we are. The legislature has until December 29th to raise a dispute against the effort. If the legislature agrees to the union, it may be formed as early as the end of the year. Chinook salmon are spawning in the upper Columbia River. It's the first time in decades the fish have spawned in this part of the river. Colville tribal biologists discovered 36 salmon nests called reds in September. Salmon have been blocked from this part of the river since the building of the Chief Joseph Dam in the 1950s and the Grand Coulee Dam in the 30s. Since 2014, tribes in the Columbia River have been working toward reintroducing the fish into the river. Last year, in a cultural event, 60 salmon were released above the Chief Joseph Dam. 100 more released farther north in August of 2020. Researchers were surprised and pleasantly so by a high survival rate of those little swimmers and the amount of the spawning. And finally, some good news. Bybee Lakes Hope Center is now open. The never-used Wapato Jail has been transformed into a shelter for people experiencing homelessness. Bybee Lakes is still undergoing renovations, but is offering 40 beds for the winter and will be able to offer 95 more after, after social distancing restrictions end. There are 33 clients at the moment. Representatives for the center say that the open dorms represent phase one of the construction. Phase two will involve the adding of a playground, an upgraded kitchen, and more natural light. Before opening, the center was able to overcome its largest accessibility obstacle. TriMed agreed to run a bus line to the center. Happy with the opening despite pandemic slowdown, Executive Director Alan Evans said, quote, When you walk in the place and you see the families and you see the kids and the elderly and you see the people know it's a safe place they can flourish, it's pretty exciting. And, and that's, that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next, we will hear from Andrea Durbin, the Director of the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability in the City of Portland. Andrea spoke with Jefferson Smith about the Clean Air Healthy Climate proposal here in Portland. Here are Andrea and Jefferson. Portland City Council set a goal last summer to get carbon emissions 50% lower than they were in 1990. Portland's got 19% below that level, but progress might be slowing down. That's why the city is looking at a new proposal to charge fees for carbon emissions. Here to say more about that proposal is the director of the Portland Bureau of Planning and Sustainability, the legendary Andrea Durbin. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jefferson. It's great to be here. It's great to hear your voice. How are you enjoying your position? I'm loving my position. It's been a challenging year, obviously, but it's um, it's an important bureau in the city and looking at the future, helping to plan for the future of the city and obviously uh, responsible for helping to put uh, the city of Portland on track for meeting our carbon reduction goals. So a lot of challenges ahead, but, um, I, but I'm really enjoying it. Thanks for asking. What are the most what are the most important and or hardest decisions that are made that you need to deal with at the uh, Portland Bureau of Planning and Sustainability? Well, uh, hardest decisions. I think it's it's challenging because the city has you know limited resources and a lot of needs, and you know we really have to kind of identify and balance what can we get done. Um, we really we're making shifts to center our work to be more community oriented, community driven, and collaborative with community, and um, that's important uh, to make sure that we are advancing options, solutions that benefit. Um, all residents, particularly those that have been underserved for so many years, our BIPOC community residents. So um, it's challenging work, but really important work. 
Let me try a different question. What's the garden variety decision? For people who don't have a great eye into what the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability does, what are the most important decisions? You know, just kind of what it does. What does it do? Oh, well, we are on the planning side. We are responsible for long-term um, future planning for the city. We are responsible for land use, zoning planning. So, for instance, uh, in the last year, um, several years, we've been working and we just uh, council passed the residential infill proposal, which will um, make our neighborhoods more inclusive, make um, incentivize development building of more middle-income housing choices and more um, affordable options for people. We're really part of our charge is to make sure that we are helping to build and create a city that is more inclusive, that has more options for all residents, and um, that we have, we're creating neighborhoods across the city that have access to amenities, parks, um, and uh, jobs and opportunities. So it's really, it's, it's an important bureau. We work across the city with um, other bureaus or housing partners, our economic development um, partners at Prosper, um, our transportation partners. So it's a um, Bureau of Planning and Sustainability is kind of a convener um, with both community and within the city to kind of be the forward looking, um, taking the forward look about how do we develop as a city and where do we, where are we heading? And that's um, important in terms of climate as well. And, And are we on track for meeting our climate reduction goals? The new proposal is the Clean Air Healthy Climate. I think I'm getting that name right. Yeah, what does the proposal do? Well, your listeners might be aware that Portlanders breathe the dirtiest air in Oregon. The Clean Air Healthy Climate proposal um, really is about reducing the air toxics that harm our community and will help move Portland closer to addressing the climate crisis. Um, there are actually two fees in this proposal. Um, one is a healthy climate fee. And that would require about 35 of the largest um, emitters of greenhouse gas emissions um, operating in Portland to pay a $25 per ton uh, carbon fee to the city of Portland. And then the second fee is called a clean air protection fee. And that would establish a uh, tiered fee level between $15,000 and $40,000 a year for facilities that are um, generating substantial hazardous air pollution locally. And these are facilities that hold um, air discharge permits with the Department of Environmental Quality. So we're really looking at, uh, you know, in the emissions from these um, entities are emitting hazardous air toxics and greenhouse gas emissions that harm community health and impose a significant cost to the community and our economy. Uh, so this proposal is really about advancing a polluter pays principle, making sure that the party, re- party responsible for those emissions um, takes responsibility to pay for some of the impacts and damage done to our local community, um, public health, and our economy. Your your remarks are well taken. We appreciate them. I want to dig in a little more. The You said two fees. The first one charges whom? Charges the... So the state has a program to uh, require all large emitters of 2,500 or more greenhouse gas um, tons a year to register with the state. And so all of those um, that are emitting 2,500 or or above in uh, locating and operating in the city of Portland um, would be covered by this proposal. And so right now there are 35 um, entities that it would be covered. So those are big polluters. And how is that different from the second? Those were certain types of polluters that emitted certain types of pollutants? 
Yeah, so the second part is really addressing more clean air. Um, and it's the, these are the major emitters that have um, the uh, pollution discharge permits with, with the state. So these um, are, and they're just the top tier. There are, there are a number of smaller businesses, nail salons, and dry cleaners that also have um, uh, permits with the state. But we're really looking at the largest emitters who are emitting um, the most hazardous air toxins. And then where does the money go? Is it, is, have you, uh, it looks like the projection is about $11 million a year. Where does that money go to? Yeah, so the, um, it's two different funds. On the healthy climate fee side, it would generate about $9 million. And yeah. that money would be really help the city invest in our climate action plan to reduce emissions from the buildings and transportation. Um, that's where we've seen the, um, you know, our progress really plateau and um, the emissions continue to rise. So we want to make sure that we are generating, generating resources to invest in the actions that will reduce um, pollution from those sectors. It also helps us invest in community resiliency and better planning for the impacts of climate change. You know, we are already seeing those impacts, whether it's you know wildfire smoke that we all experience um, or increased heat um, waves. And uh, we need to be better prepared for protecting communities that are most at risk from those impacts. And you say it plateauing. I think I, what I heard understood you to say was that our, uh, and thank you so much for spending this time with us, that our uh, that our progress, our city's progress towards our climate goals have stalled because of transportation. It stalled because of driving, yeah? And so you want to put that money into uh, new transportation infrastructure that would allow what? B- uh, buses to be more attractive and, you know, more walking and bike lanes, that kind of thing? Exactly. And also, how do we, we need to make the shift to electrify our transportation sector. We need to, you know, people are going to continue to drive, right? Um, so we want to make sure that they, we have the infrastructure um, throughout the city to support um, electric vehicles. And, uh, and we also need to address the emissions from freight. Uh, many of us are um, we're all at home ordering, are ordering things to be delivered by Amazon. Uh, and so that is all being delivered by vehicles that should be uh, ultimately uh, electrified. So really it's uh, making sure that we have programs in place in the city um, and are building out that the infrastructure necessary uh, to make that shift and that transition in the transportation sector so that we have a cleaner um, transportation sector. So you said the principle is a polluter pays. I, I drive a pickup truck. Okay. And it's very useful for me on occasion to have a pickup truck. And I don't have a second. My wife has a car that I can use from time to time, but I don't have a second car. I just have a pickup truck. And I drove my pickup truck this morning. I'm hoping to get an e-bike maybe even for Christmas. They're kind of expensive. But right now I drive a pickup truck. That means I'm a polluter. What's interesting to me, one of the things interesting about this, and thank you for the work, one of the things interesting to me is that it looks like the focus on the fees are on major polluters, major institutions that pollute a lot per polluter, rather than on people like me who are driving a pickup truck. But if you add up all the people like me, I have to imagine we're the problem even more than a particular point source uh, distributor of pollution. Do I have that wrong? No, you have that absolutely right. And, and the reality is, is that to get on track for meeting our um, carbon reduction goals, we need to um, implement all strategies and efforts. And um, addressing um, emissions from industrial sources is part of the issue. But really, you're right, the, the revenue that is generated from this proposal will help us implement the actions 
um, that are, were in our 2015 climate action plan that the city of Portland hasn't had the resources to really implement. Um, we know what the solutions are. We know that we need to um, help people make that shift, help you to make that shift to an, an electric bike, for instance, help others to do the same. Um, we need to um, have the resources, the capacity to actually be able to make those changes. And that's really what this um, will help us do. We need to, um, as a city, uh, we know that we are in a climate crisis. Um, city Council has been really clear in the climate emergency declaration that they passed last June unanimously um, that we need to accelerate action, we need to take bigger, bolder actions, and we need to find the resources to do so. And this is a, this, this is that directive that we need to uh, amass more ability to actually execute on these um, strategies that the city has kind of laid out, but we just haven't had the resources to do so. Why not charge me? Why not charge drivers? Is it because it's too hard to figure out how to do that, either constitutionally or practically, to have some sort of local carbon tax or local gas tax? Uh, why not? Why isn't there a third part uh, of this, which is charging the pickup truck drivers or just, you know, drivers in general to say, hey, we're going to we're going to be paying to make it so that you don't have to drive as much. We're going to make it more uh, possible to have a, a transportation infrastructure that is attractive for alternative transportation. And those of you who are polluting and emitting in your cars, you're going to help pay for that. What's the barrier of doing that? Or is there already plenty of that happening? There's um, yeah, this this proposed fee is is a first step in in efforts. I think there are clearly going to be need to be additional um, ways to use pricing um, uh, strategies. Uh, we've, we're doing work with the Bureau of Transportation right now uh, to evaluate um, other pricing strategies. You know, looking at congestion pricing, for instance. So I think that this is not this is not the be all end all answer. This is one step. Um, this is going to require action on climate is going to require many actions and many approaches. And um, I don't know what the next one will be quite yet in terms on the pricing side, but I think that we're evaluating other ways to uh, ensure that we're using pricing signals to you know, uh, incentivize behavioral changes. Is the hardest thing to figure out the policy? Is the hardest thing to figure out how it's uh, how it's actually fair? How how it doesn't, for instance, you know, sort of impact BIPOC communities disproportionately? Is that is that the harder part, or is the harder part the politics that you know Lars Larson will come out and whack you for charging people for driving their pickup truck? Um, it also, you know, it's probably a little bit of both, yeah. right? Um, I think on the transportation side, uh, Oregon has a unique. Uh, challenge, which is the highway trust fund. The highway trust fund requires that any kind of fee taxes go directly into the highway trust fund, which has um, traditionally been used for building roads um, and bridges. So that's a unique um, challenge that we have in the state of Oregon and that we need to figure out how to how to work around. Um, so it's, it's, it's often both. It's politics and policy. That's uh, I'm so glad you brought up the, the highway trust trust fund. Doesn't that seem like something somebody should take on at, at some point? I mean, we've is that too much of a sacred cow? Couldn't it be a transportation trust fund? Couldn't be? Couldn't it be a you know future worthy infrastructure trust fund? I know that would have to go. I, my understanding is that means it would have to go to the ballot. Is there anybody even doing median term or even long term planning on how to uh, make sure we have a trust fund that is worthy of this century rather than just the last one? I think there are um, community organizations that are really uh, looking at those options. I think there is a conversation about that. Clearly, 
um, the solutions for today are very different than they were um, decades ago. And we need to be able to invest in transit, biking, walking, um, and you know, multimodal options for communities across Oregon, not just in Portland. Um, so absolutely, I think that is that is one of the um, needs and challenges that uh, I hope Oregon leaders will embrace and rise to the challenge. Any other cities that you're learning from? Are you looking at other examples around the country, maybe around the world, of folks who've done interesting things that maybe have uh, informed this proposal or might inform future proposals? Yeah, we you know we we have looked at other cities um, in the United States and globally. Um, the we've looked Colorado, both Boulder and Denver have um, implemented different kinds of measures, but both measures intended to generate resources to help them implement their climate action plan, which is similar to what we're, what this proposal represents. Um, and other places like British Columbia have um, uh, in, introduced a, a carbon tax that has helped really improve in, in industrial energy efficiency outcomes. So, you know, I think uh, we are looking at other cities and we have a lot of, um, I think, lessons to be learned. I think, you know, we're uh, and other other Canadian provinces like Ontario, they've also had um, pricing, carbon pricing, and they've seen similar improvements in the manufacturing side. And so we really hope that this will actually what what this proposal is doing is is starting a conversation that we want to have with with the industrial sector and with other um, uh, larger um, institutional um, entities that are covered by this about how do we decarbonize? How do we how do we how do they uh, prioritize making the shift from moving from fossil fuels to renewable energy and renewable fuels. Um, and that's a conversation that is, that is starting to happen that would not have happened otherwise. Something I was unaware of is that some of Portland's biggest polluters are hospitals. Any exceptions being made for them, or is that anything we need to be aware of? Yes, uh, this proposal covers our four hospitals that are covered, and we've um, uh, uh, rec- are recommending that they have an additional year to comply, uh, recognizing the important role that they're playing in our community and responding to the global pandemic. So uh, we're working closely with them, getting their input, um, but the, uh, the draft proposal that's out for public comment review right now um, gives them an additional year to comply. You just went to the public for public comment. What sort of stuff are you hearing, or what role does public comment play in decision-making by city council or by your bureau? Um, public comment is really important. Uh, it's it's our opportunity to hear from diverse stakeholders. Um, what did we get wrong? What did we get right? Um, where do they want to see us go further? What um, what can, what are some unintended impacts that we maybe didn't think about in um, devising the, the policy proposal? So we've been having meetings with stakeholders, including the covered entities, and hearing a lot of important input. Um, uh, and, you know, as a result, we will be modifying the proposal and coming out with a, uh, uh, the next version in uh, later uh, in, in the new year, later in January. And uh, we'll have another opportunity for the public to review that and give input before we propose, make our recommended proposal to city council for consideration. Any resistance you're facing or anticipating? You know, it's a good question, Jefferson. I think the... Um, We've, we've been having conversations with those entities um, covered directly and the business community generally, and we're hearing mixed response. There's some that really understand and recognize that uh, the city needs to step up actions on climate change and clean up our air, and they, they're on board and understand that that's important for us as a community. It's important to them as major employers. 
Um, and then, of course, we're hearing from a lot that are directly impacted that um, they're unhappy, they feel singled out, they're frustrated about new taxes, new fees being required of them. Um, and so, you know, that's we're and we're hearing, listening for specific ways that we can um, uh, craft this proposal so that it doesn't um, have unintended consequences. What happens next? You're waiting for, you get the public comment, you have the hearing, finish out that timeline. What's most important that we need to be aware of and watching for next? Great question. And I really hope that your listeners who are interested in this and want to see the city city step forward and, and lead on climate and, and cleaning up our air, uh, participate in the public comment period because that is really important. Um, you can do that by checking out our website. It's on our Portland Map app, which you, if your listeners haven't checked out, it's a really easy way to um, track these kinds of conversations that Bureau of Planning and Sustainability is leading and provide input um, at portlandmap.com slash BPS slash healthy dash climate. And what happens next is the public comment period will close January 4th. Um, we will work internally um, with um, you know, city attorneys and with our revenue division to revise this proposal and come up with an, the next version of this. Um, and there'll be another public comment period. Again, we'll kind of seek that input. Um, it's an iterative process. And then we'll make our recommendations to city council uh, and we expect that to happen sometime this spring. Andrea Durbin, thank you so much for your service. I mean that genuinely. You're a you are a absolute pillar. You're such a you're such an asset to our community. Thanks for the work that you're doing, and thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you, Jefferson. It's been great. Thanks to Andrea for joining the local. Thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in about thirty minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a five star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X Ray.